This, uh, just to give a quick background to how I came to organize this workshop, um, last, uh, last year I was involved in an EU-funded project called uh, Roberta, which uh, is aimed at uh, using robots to attract um, young, well, uh, to interest young women in careers in technology and engineering there, and uh, they were proposing having a workshop here at this time of the year there on this subject, but for um, the whole of Europe there, and uh, they were saying they'd only be able to accommodate about six people, six delegates from each country. Well, that um, was a very good idea, but uh, they seemed to go very quiet after that, but I thought it was too too good an idea to go to waste, and uh, and one of my colleagues in Shrewsbury, uh, Charles Denscombe, some of you will know, pointed out to me just before Christmas that there were some big opportunities coming up and the changes being introduced in the, uh, certainly in the key stage three design and technology curriculum and also in the new diplomas there, it was becoming obvious that uh, uh, this was a very timely subject there. So I took the initiative to go ahead and organize today's workshop there and uh, also, um, Dave Kaplan, one of the, one of our speakers today, I came across a very good article on the same subject that he'd published last autumn there, and it all seemed, everything seemed to come together nicely, and uh, as soon as I started networking and putting out invitations for people to speak, those, uh, those people would pass invitations on to colleagues there, and the next to no time today's program came together. So it's, it's obviously very timely that we discuss this subject today, and I hope uh, that uh, we'll all find a good opportunity to share and exchange ideas and to uh, to meet people we may not have met before. Okay, without any further ado, we'll uh, introduce um, our first speakers, Torben Stieg and David Barlax, who both had a, a great deal to do with defining the new Key Stage 3 design and technology curriculum. They're going to be doing a double act there for the next 50 minutes. They're Torben... There, uh, I know David's works for um, Nuffield Foundation. Torben, yeah, um, maybe you'll explain exactly who you work for. <laughs> okay, and introduce yourself. Okay, thank you. Morning. Yes, I'm, I'm Torben, um, and I, I do various things. I'm self-employed, but I work with David on uh, supporting the Electronics in School strategy, which is run through the Design and Technology Association and funded by the Department for Children, Schools and Families and IET. And David and I originally had separate talks, but, but we kind of looked at what we were both doing and decided we'd be better to sort of merge it. So you're getting a, a kind of Torben and David sandwich. I'm, I'm going to talk for a bit, and then David will pop up, and then um, I'll finish off and... I've now had to confess I've, I'm torn. I, I told David that if I, if I made a real mess of it, I was going to say I was David and then hope that he could come up and be articulate and pretend he was me. But, um, that kind of covers what we're going to talk about in the next sort of 40 minutes or so. Um, uh, depending on how well we do, we might leave a bit of time for questions, we hope, but we'll, we'll see how we go on. Um, the kind of original title was of this conference is, is Robots in the Curriculum, and we thought that kind of set of headings would be quite a useful thing to explore, particularly as we ended up at the beginning of the conference. Um, but I, I thought, particularly as it was the beginning of the conference, and I, I know I'm talking to a bunch of experts and all this stuff, but I thought it was just worth exploring a little bit 
the whole notion of robots and what they are. And what exactly it is we envisage robots in the curriculum to be like. Because um, that's a pretty popular uh, or, or common conception of what robots are. Or if you want a slightly friendly version, you've got the three-law safe robot from, from iRobot. Um, and I love that tagline. What would you do with yours? Which begs the question we'll come back to at the end of the talk. Um, but an awful lot of robotics these days increasingly looks like that. Um, Dave and I both stumbled across a lovely article about a new um, uh, wireless uh, router that's been put onto a set of tracks like that uh, as, as a device for the military, and they just kind of chuck them onto the tops of buildings and they drive around and find the best signal so they, the military can make kind of ad hoc networks. Well, that was a, a nice military idea. Could be, could be adapted for schools, perhaps. That, that, that's another DARPA project, you know, the Defence um, Agency in the States. That's called Big Dog. It's a kind of robot mule, and, and that's a serious device that they're developing so that, you know, they don't have to have real animals out in the desert. They can just take things like that along. More interesting, I think, is that robots have entered our homes, and most people, I mean, I'm sure you all realise this, but most people have not noticed. Um, you can get robot vacuum cleaners. You can get robot lawnmowers. And this kind of idea of robots, like, like, like the iRobot robot, is a while, a while away, but already quite a few people. Anybody in the room got a robot vacuum cleaner or a robot lawnmower? Oh, yes. One? Just the one? I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> well, then... <clears throat> But they are increasingly common. In fact, if you, if you look on, on the kind of websites of, of robot, uh, of, of lawnmower companies, they sell two or three or four different kinds of robot lawnmower now. It's a, there's competition amongst robots. I came across this the other day. Um, you seen this? This, this is, this is Spikey. Spikey is a home, um, guard robot that's internet enabled and uses Skype, hence the Spikey title, uses Skype to allow you to talk to it and it to talk to you and to look through its video camera as it rolls around your house. That's on the market now. I'm going to a different scale. That, that's, that's, a, that's a, a water boatman robot. That's really small. And when I was in the States this summer, uh, last summer, um, that there was a kind of robot football competition going on and that little bit in the middle of the yellow was the smallest football pitch in this robot competition. So, you know, we, we, I think faced with interesting challenges when we think about where robots are in the curriculum because they're getting, you know, increasingly intelligent. They're entering our homes. They're not cheap. They're getting smaller. You know, how do you get kids to design that small? It's an interesting question. And, of course, I'm sure, again, you all know... One of the big trends in robotics these days is the whole idea of swarms of robots that assemble themselves into the right kind of architecture depending on the task in hand. And I think that's quite an interesting area to explore. Um, and, it, and it brings us to the whole idea of emergence. Um, I do quite a lot of work with a piece of software called NetLogo that allows you to program. Uh, it's, it's logo, but instead of having one turtle, you have maybe a thousand and you can program each turtle to behave in the same way. And then you see emergent properties arising out of the swarm of turtles. And there's interesting work to do there with pupils as well that, that links to doing swarm work with robots. And then, of course, <clears throat> do you all know this chap? This is Kevin Warwick, who, is he a robot? Is he a cyborg? He, he likes to claim he's the first cyborg, I think. Um, and he, he's embedded all kinds of robotics into himself. So here, as he moves his muscles, the robot hand moves. Um, and here he is, connected robotically to his missus. I think she's got a slightly strained smile myself, but um, 
he, 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 he's on record as saying there's nothing quite like feeling your, your loved ones, your partners, I can't remember the phrase used, muscles moving. You know, she moves her arm, I can feel that sensation. I couldn't help feeling there are other ways to gain intimacy, but... But if you're in Spain, it's not quite robotics, but if you're in Spain, you can have, and I guess it's happening in this country too, I'm, I'm a bit old to know about this stuff, but you can have RFID devices embedded in yourself to get instant access into clubs. Now, this isn't medical technology, this is just to make it easy to get into your club. You get priority access if you've got RFID embedded under your skin. And kids are going there, they, they, they see no problem with that. So again, I think there are interesting issues in where electronics merges with people, with robotics and things. I'm not going to read these. You're all perfectly capable of reading. Um, but I thought it'd be useful to just pull down a few definitions of robots. Nothing there that's going to surprise you, but I wanted to build on that in a second. Um, I'll give you a second to read through those. One of the interesting things about them is that it ranges from the kind of industrial view of robots to the, the Android view of robots. And I found this quite useful list of different kinds of robots. One of the things that's been puzzling me in, in the months since Ashley invited us to come and give this talk is, you know, where's the boundary of robots? There's been quite a lot of stuff about surgical robots, the idea of a surgeon doing one thing, but a robot actually does it. And I was thinking, how much is that a robot? Because there's no autonomy there, not at the moment. This isn't a robot that decides which bit of your kneecap it's going to carve off. The surgeon decides that, but a device tele guided actually does the work and, and a new version of that uh, I saw recently, if you're having a knee, kneecap surgery they've got a new tele-robot for surgeons that, that has haptic feedback so that you've decided how much bone you're going to carve off somebody's kneecap as a surgeon and the system won't let you carve any more off, you can feel the pressure through the robotic system, so there's all that kind of stuff going on, the telepresence as well then there's the static robots, mobile robots um, and all of those other things that are up there, again I'm not going to read everything out to you but it did leave me questioning, uh, uh, is an aeroplane a robot then? It's all fly-by-wire. What about a domestic burglar system? Is that a robot? I, 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 I just think it'd be quite interesting to broaden out the vision for this conference of what a robot might be. I mean, some of you might draw the line at a domestic burglar system. That's just an electronic system with sensors and outputs. I don't know. Does it, does it have to have electromechanical kind of motion to be a robot? Certainly aeroplanes have that. Has anybody seen this thing, the WizKid? Um, th th this is a lovely little thing. It's a screen that moves up and down, forwards and backwards, where it can rotate. It has visual expressions. It's got a little camera on the top of it. It reacts to your expressions. And you can look on the screen. It, you control it with your eyes. So you look at something on the screen. You see little green circles there on the screen and the squares. You look at something on the screen. It, it will assume that's what you're looking at and, and do whatever that thing that you're looking on the screen is. Now, is that an advanced operating system? Is that a robot? I don't know. But I think it's quite interesting. So we're going to have those features in robots, possibly. Okay, brain, skeleton, muscle, motion, sensors of various kinds, food, maybe. I'm being very anthropomorphic here, obviously. Um, but that sort of sets an agenda about the kind of knowledge that kids are going to have to have if they're going to do robotics in the curriculum. They need to know about computer stuff, programming, but computer hardware as well. Obviously, they need to know about structural stuff. 
they might need to know about more than just electric motors, which is mostly these days what happens in D&T in schools in terms of, of making things happen, all kinds of ways of making things move. Um, I added rolling to that list because I've seen some very nice snake robots recently that, that kind of climb up your leg and things. I don't know if people have seen these. Some fantastic videos on YouTube. I thought I was taking a load of YouTube video on here, and then I thought, um, technically, it might all go horribly wrong, so I chickened out. But, but there is some, some nice stuff, a lot of which is on my website, actually, if anybody wants to have a look at these things. Um, big range of senses that we might want, and then, of course, how do we power things? As I say, I think that's an agenda for... That gives us an agenda for what we're going to teach children, what kind of thing we teach them. It doesn't talk about how we might teach them, but there's some knowledge there. And before I move on, I thought that was nice. This comes from the rules for roboticists, which is about 12, I think, or 15 of these rules from streettech.com. And I thought the idea of a roboticist being as much an artist as a scientist is rather nice. It kind of lifts us above talking just about STEM, which is what everybody wants to talk about in government these days, we can move a little bit outside that agenda of STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths, and maybe look at more creative aspects. And that quote, I think, art without engineering is dreaming, engineering without art is calculating, is rather nice. So, what will could robots be in the curriculum? <clears throat> I don't know if you know this, but, but the, the government um, is sponsoring uh, science and engineering clubs. They're paying money to schools to run science and engineering clubs after school. Uh, 250 started this last September. Another 250 will be starting in September 2008. And one of the, one of the interesting things, and David uh, came back with this information, was that the, the people at DCSF who are running this didn't want robots happening in these clubs, which is a bit of a surprise, really. I mean, science and engineering club, you'd have thought one of the things you might want to do would be robotics. And I suspect that's the fear. I suspect that they, they see robots as being something about boys for the toys and that they don't want science and engineering clubs to be about boys for toys, or toys for boys even. Um, <clears throat> so I think that, that raises an interesting question about our agenda as well, which links to this. Uh, you, you, you'll remember, I'm sure, both these TV programmes and, and, and I, I always felt that the Robot Olympics was rather nice. And it, it gave kids a huge range of different challenges, rope climbing, swimming, the high jump, the long jump, all kinds of really interesting things that, that, that produced quite interesting challenges. Robot Wars always struck me, yeah, but I can kind of see the attraction, but really it's just about destruction, isn't it? You know, the, particularly if you're teaching this within a DNT context, which isn't the only subject you teach in, but it raised all kinds of issues about what values robots have carried with them. So uh, there's a question to ask, which links to are we going to kind of do competitive work or com cooperative work in our robots? What kind of robots do we want in our society? Sorry? Tibetan robots. Tibetan robots. What's a Tibetan robot? One doesn't get that, doesn't get well, indeed, yes. <laughs> yes, thank you. And it also raises the issue about what, how children work. We, we have a kind of almost universal model, again, within design technology, not the case, I think, in clubs that work outside school, but I'm talking about in the curriculum at the moment, of children generally working individually. The, the new key stage three orders, and David will talk more about this, talk much more about group work as well as individual work. Um, and John, Martin, and I have done a bit of work with, with creative partnerships, looking at creativity and electronics recently, where one of the schools very much worked 
with groups, get kids to design in groups, do all their working groups. And I have to say, the work that came out of this group, Year 9s, looked much more like Year 11 work because they worked as a group and, and had been allowed to be creative. So I think there's a lot of issues about if you can do robotics, where's the group work? For example, you know, you, you can envisage a group of children working on systems and a group of, sorry, structures, a group of children working on the programming, a group of children working on the electronics, all moving towards the same robotic system but working cooperatively, for example. And then there's the range of context which, which links to the idea of competitive or cooperative um, approaches to robotics. What sort of context? Is it just going to be robot walls or can we find contexts that are about helping people in some way or another? And there's a balance, I think, between pre-built robots. We, we see quite a lot of those offered to schools, things you can just buy. And basically what you do is you then program it to do interesting things. Um, <clears throat> and then there are kits like there's an awful lot of Lego, that, that fantastic new um, Lego Next system. Um, so there are kits. But what about DIY, you know, building it from the ground up, you deciding what the structures are going to be, what the mechanisms are going to be. And I think, I don't think there's, there's a, there's a just, you do one, the other, or the other. I think there are ways of balancing those. For example, are you all, you're all be familiar with the Segway, this, this kind of platform that you kind of stand on, lean forward, and it drives, and you lean back and drives. That, that, that has been used in, in, in American universities particularly as a platform for robotics. Because what you've got is a built, you've got built in a, a stable platform that, that will never fall over, and you can just build whatever you like on top of that. And if you make your mechanism on top of it lean forward, the thing will move forward. If you make it lean back, the thing will lean backwards. Um, similarly, the Roomba, that, that, that uh, vacuum cleaner robot that I showed before, um, they, they sell that now as a robot base. They sell a version of it as a robot base with all the API out in the open for you to plug into. So, so there's, there's a kind of mixture between a pre-built bit of this and then you build your own stuff on top. So I think there are ways you can do that. Um, I, I've had an interesting conversation with the Lego people, which I'd really like to pursue, which is along the lines of, wouldn't it be nice if we had in something like ProDesktop the, 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 the exact sizes for Lego bits, not so that we can produce our own Lego bits and undermine Lego, because that's never going to happen because we can't build them as cheaply, but so you could easily build extra shapes, different shapes, interesting creative shapes that would easily plug onto the Lego Next system. Um, I mentioned this to a couple of Danish um, Lego people, and they, David was there, but they looked a bit horrified because they're very worried about their intellectual property, but I think it would open up that system very interestingly. And I think in all of this, it's very important that, that we give, we listen to pupils. There's, there's a big move at the moment uh, from the government amongst other people. Um, certainly Nesta and Future Lab are talking about this a lot on pupil voice. Where's pupil voice in the education system? I think if we're going to be talking about robotics. We ought to be asking pupils, what kind of robots would you like to build? Um, and encourage robots with attitude. Robots, as, as, as you would have heard David say very often, robots with a bit of edge. Um, so they're not just the dull, same old robots, but they've got a bit of cheek behind them. It might be something we might do to attract people. So where in the curriculum will this happen? Well, it, those of you who know me won't be surprised to hear me talking about DNT, and I, I see a lot of DNT colleagues in the room. Actually, my background is in physics and computer science. That's where I, I came from into teaching, and I sort of followed electronics as it went into DNT. But, but DNT seems to me the clear big space where you expect to see robotics happening. I just can't see any other subjects um, having the space for it. But clearly there are strong links to science. I'm, I'm going down the STEM route here. Obviously there are, there are very strong links to science. There's got to be strong links to maths. From what you've heard me saying, you'd expect me to be saying that I think there are very rich links to art and design that could be made. Um, 
I also want to make the case for computer science. That doesn't exist as a subject in schools, but I think it should. And I don't mean ICT. I, I, you can shout at me later for saying this, but I, I think ICT as a subject is essentially a dead subject. This idea that you just keep, keep teaching kids more and more packages, you know, teach them Office, then you teach them Flash, then you teach them how to write web pages, strikes me as a bit dull. And on the whole, most of it, we do in other subjects in the curriculum anyway. Whereas proper computer science, if you like, you know, where kids actually learn about programming principles, they learn about hardware principles, I think links very richly to what we're doing here. Um, you'll notice I haven't put engineering on this. Um, I could have done, but... But engineering in schools, and this is the way that, for example, engineering colleges are set up, engineering colleges are expected to link math, science, and D&T with engineering to make the richness of what engineering is. So engineering is, seems to me in schools, I'm talking about, not, not universities, a subject that sort of emerges from the combination, a good combination of science, math, and D&T, and maybe computer science. When David and I were doing some work for, for the SSAT on what is an engineering college, one of the schools I went to talk to, I asked them about how this, this trinity of subjects, science, maths, and D&T, worked. They said, oh, we like to see it more as a, more as a, what's a trinity with four, they said. Anyway, quadrilateral, because we're very keen on having ICT in there, which, which is what I've got in as computer science, because they felt that was really important as engineering. You can't do modern engineering without doing computing as well. So I think those are the subjects that you might find them in, in the curriculum. Um, and I'm going to pass over to David now talk about how they might get there. Yeah, reminded by uh, uh, um, the, the DCSF's got a reluctance to think about robots and kind of, they might be boys' toys. There's a, a, a feminist philosopher called Donna Haraway who wrote an article, I'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess. Um, I'll just leave you with that. Um, now then, oh, wrong way. How, they, how might it appear in the curriculum and I think the first thing you have to think about is how we're going to teach it, because that's how things appear in the curriculum. They get taught. And I'm very keen on a pedagogy that is driven by what I call purpose and utility. Uh, and I think the purpose of the activity is provided through designing, making and evaluating, in this case, robots. As far as D&T is concerned as a subject, it could be designing, making and evaluating anything, but we're particularly concerned with robots. But I think one of the things D&T brings to the party is this purpose. You're pursuing you know, a purpose in trying to go from ideas into something that actually sort of does something in the world. And in that sort of thing, I think the key thing is the designing aspects, and I like to think about that in terms of design decisions. And I've sort of thought about this with a number of colleagues, and we've come up with these sort of five sorts of design decisions that young people in school can make. There's a conceptual decision, um, and often teachers make that decision for children. They say, we're in this class, and in the next few weeks, we're going to design and make a such and such. Um, and sometimes... Uh, you know, they also go on to say it's going to work like this, it's going to look like this, and it's going to, you're going to make it like this, and we're not going to worry about who it's for, because what I really want to teach is a whole lot of making skills. I'm dressing it up as design, and I, I don't want to go there. I think it's very important that actually the young people have some control over the design decisions they make. Now, Torben raised the point, um, and he and I often talked about this, of the pupil voice. Uh, and this, okay, it's a robot, but what sort of robot? What's this robot going to do? So that's where the conceptual design decisions come in. In uh, this general term, marking who's this robot for? And who it's for will, to a large extent, govern, to some extent, that's, well, that's 
that's, that doesn't sound very clear, but, but it will, will have a relationship with what it's like, okay? Um, and therefore, that gets you into the other sorts of design decisions, how it actually works, what it looks like, and how you're going to make it. And those decisions are interrelated. If you change who it's for, the chances are you're going to change other things. If you change how it works, how you make it is going to be different. Now, the problem for the teacher, of course, is how they enable young people to balance all those range of decisions and if you give them too many decisions to make they fail if you don't give them enough decisions they don't learn anything really that's worthwhile about how you design and what it means to be a designer and pursue purpose now one of the the things that's emerged over the past sort of few years is that a lot of children for reasons not absolutely clear but they get pretty turned off maths and science. And one of the arguments is, well, they don't see that it's of any use. And that's where I think utility comes in, because, you know, you do need to be quite good for certain sorts of sort of robotics designing to be good at maths and science. And this might give a, a sort of, you know, a reason for getting in there with the maths and science. So I see that you've got a pedagogy that's driven by purpose and utility. I think the way to achieve that, you need some sort of model for how you're going to teach this, and the way to achieve that is through a relationship between small tasks and a big task. And I think in any sort of teaching, there needs to be some sort of stimulus to engage the young people. I don't think it's going to be difficult to engage them with robotics, particularly if you give them some control over the conceptual design decisions. What sort of robot, what's it going to do? And then they're kind of hooked. <clears throat> and then I think you need some small tasks which provide the utility, the wherewithal, uh, to tackle the big task, which is designing and making the robot. Okay? And so you can feed in little tasks to do with particular bits of science, particular bits of math, maybe particular bits of design and technology as well. And that prepares the children to be successful in the big task. What often happens, it seems to me, in, in, in some cases, is that people do the small tasks and then stop, or they throw children into the big tasks and they fail. And it seems to me you need this balance. And again, uh, if you think through the sorts of design decisions you want children to make, then you can arrange the small tasks so they prepare young, ch- young people to make those decisions when they're in the big task. And it's an interesting exercise, balancing out the time that you need for the stimulus initially, how much time you spend on small tasks, uh, how much time you spend on the big task, and whether, in fact, you kind of mix the small tasks into the big tasks, so they get into the big tasks, but you have something in the bank for them. When they get stuck, say, well, why don't you try thinking about it like this through this task and get back to it? So although that looks a simple model, I think that can be quite complicated to work out, but it does provide us with a way of enabling people, young people, to make the sorts of decisions that will be important if they're going to get into robotics. How might they get into the curriculum? Well, the gatekeepers are, of course, the teachers. Okay, It's no good if the teachers can't handle it. And I think we're going to need quite a lot of effective um, you know, continuing professional development based on what we think is a subject construct approach which is developed at the Open University. And this has got three parts. You know, you, clearly you need some subject knowledge. You've got to know your stuff. Okay? Uh, and I think that for a lot of teachers... You know, they will have to spend quite a bit of time acquiring subject knowledge that's relevant to robotics. Not all teachers, those people who are well versed in uh, a sort of ECT will be okay, but for teachers who are new to it, there will be sort of a subject knowledge sort of boost required. 
it's no good knowing a load of stuff unless you know how to teach that stuff. So you need pedagogic knowledge to go with it. Um, uh, and initially, sometimes when, when new curriculum uh, sort of initiatives come on, you get a lot of people say, well, we've got to know all this stuff. And they say, don't worry too much about how you're going to teach it. And also you have to worry about what, I, what the Open University has called school knowledge, which is how you get this new stuff that you now know how to teach into the curriculum, unless you can find a space for it. And often that requires negotiating you know, something out so that this can come in. So any sort of CPD, I think, would need to deal with those three issues. Interestingly, we've, been, we've taken that model with some work we've been doing for the TDA, uh, where we've, we're getting some uh, uh, children, uh, developing teachers getting to develop a scheme of work for electronic product design at Key Stage 3. And what we did was we gave the teachers some, a great big chunk of quality time. They had two whole days where they had access to a whole lot of equipment, materials and expert advice to design their own curriculum. I think it would be quite interesting if you put a gang of teachers in a room and said, here's a load of gear, here's some people who know a lot about it, what do you want to do with your year nine kids with robotics? You know, you've got two days to think about this. Um, initially when the teachers came, some were sort of pretty miffed that we weren't giving them a scheme of work and said, you just work your way through this and you'll know what you've got to do back at school. We said, no, 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 we don't know anything about your school. We have no school knowledge as far as you're concerned. You're the people who know about that. Let's try and get you to work up something that's right for your kids. And then we went on and gave some quality immersion time for pupils. We gave these pupils two whole days, two Saturdays as it turned out, to enable them to test drive the curriculum that the teachers had actually developed. And I think that's a really powerful model. What struck me particularly about it was that some of the pupils who came in for these two days would then become experts in that particular bit of curriculum. And when it was taught back at school to more children, they could actually become mentors to, to, uh, to some of their sort of fellow students. And I think that would be really interesting um, because it would, to some extent, take the heat off the teacher and also sort of raise the status of those kids and get more into the sort of collaborative sort of learning that, that Torben uh, uh, alluded to. And we think that their CPD may develop with, through the Design Technology Association, working with the Electronics in Schools hubs and the CAD-CAM support centres. I think it's really interesting the way that Electronics in Schools and CAD-CAM are coming together because they both use a lot of sort of computer-assisted design in their activities, uh, and uh, obviously... and. Uh, that, I think, is, is an interesting way forward, and I know that DNT Association is very interested in taking sort of work with robotics forward, perhaps through that sort of innovative pilot work. So why is the time right? Well, the new Key Stage 3 curriculum for DNT puts systems and control up front and centre, you know. Uh, practical applications of systems control, whole electrical, electrical, electronic, mechanical, that one to four seems to me you could say, well, you can do all of that if you do some really good robotics with kids. It encourages cross-curriculum endeavours. There's a big push for that. And it also encourages innovative use of time. So the sorts of way we were using time in the CPD with young people having whole days to do things, that's something that QCA are very interested in schools exploring. And, that, you know, I know if you look at the way you work when you're working on, a, on any sort of project, you know, 
40, 50 minutes and then change it on to something else is perhaps not the best model, right? It's an interesting challenge if you have young people for a whole day or two days or three days because, you know, it could go wrong and then you're stuck with them for quite a long time. So, you you have to plan that well. But our experience so far has been that that has worked really well. So, one, they're encouraging cross-curricular work, so bringing science and maths and D&T together, perhaps with art and design and other areas of the curriculum. They'd be very keen on that, and they'd also be keen on, on providing big chunks of time. There's also the STEM initiative. Uh, it's encouraging electronics as part of technology. Um, uh, and some people have reservations about STEM. I don't think STEM is going to go away. Um, the DCSF has sort of set up a STEM board, whereas before they had a maths and science board. Now they've, got a, they've combined those as a, as a STEM board and the Design Technology Association is actually represented on that board. I think it's really important that we align what we want to do with robotics with the big picture that QCA are promoting. They want successful learners, confident individuals, responsible citizens for all young people. If we assign robotics to the geeks and the nerds, right, it'll always become a minority activity. I think it's very important that we don't do that, that we see robotics in the context of educating the young person for the 21st century. I think that's over at all. Um, fab labs, I think, are interesting. Uh, th- th- this is a chap called Neil Gershenfeld, who's a, a professor, I think, physics, actually. But he works at the Centre for Bits and Atoms, which is a fantastically named centre, isn't it? I mean, that just does everything at MIT. Um, and he ran a course back in the late 90s called How to Make Almost, in brackets, Anything. And he just set up a, you know, a lab with a whole range of, of CAD CAM and a whole range of microprocessor control and said, what do you want to make? Expecting a few, as David says, geeks and nerds to turn up. Hundreds of students from all, all kinds of faculties, art students, all kinds of people turned up to this, um, to this workshop and made interesting things. They made what they wanted to. Um, and, and if you want to find out more about that, he wrote a book called Fab. That's right, just called Fab. Fab which is a really interesting book, very readable. It's not, it's not a complicated book, despite being an MIT professor. Um, and this, I, I won't go on about this unless somebody asks me to later, but, but the, the course was very successful, and it's now an embedded course. In fact, if you search for um, how to make almost anything MIT, you'll, you'll find the course outline on the website and go and have a look and see what they do. But as a result of this, he set up fab labs in deprived areas in, I think, about seven places across the world from from uh, lap reindeer herders in the far north of, of, um, of Finland to uh, somewhere in Africa, somewhere in India, somewhere in inner city, um, uh, Boston, I think. Um, forget where else they are now. And basically, I mean, remember, th- this, this, when this started, this was nearly 10 years ago, that's, that, that's what a fab lab looks like. That's the kind of stuff we do in schools now, isn't it? There's nothing there that would surprise somebody from a school. Most schools have got most of that stuff. Um, in fact, we, some of us can do better. Some of us have got 3D printers. This, this book, Fab, doesn't even mention 3D fabrication because 10 years ago that was just outrageously expensive. Now it's not. Um, and I think the idea that schools might set up their own fab labs and that this might be centred on robotics is quite interesting. You've got everything you need there to make your own robots, basically, um, apart from imagination. So, so that, that, that's a way of working that I think schools ought to think about and say, I, I, I highly recommend the book Fab to you. It's, um, 
it's a good read and not too difficult at all. The, the other person I want to introduce to you, if you don't know him, is, is Bruce Sterling. Bruce Sterling um, is probably best known for being a science fiction writer. He, he works in the, I think they call it, um, um, what do they call it, cyberpunk um, genre of science fiction. He also writes in, the, in steampunk, if you know what that is. But, but he also works with designers a lot, and he, he's definitely a kind of geek kind of guy. If you know Wired magazine, you'll probably know Bruce Sterling. He has a regular column in Wired magazine and, and a regular blog on their website. Um, and he's very much in, interested in what's happening in real technology because he feeds off that to write his science fiction. And, and he spent a year working um, as a sort of designer um, with a bunch of students in a university. And out of that came this book called Shaping Things, very thin book, um, again, a fantastic read. And, and I don't know if you can read that, but it says, this book is about created objects and the environment, which is it's a book about everything. And he goes on to say, the ideal readers for this book are those ambitious young souls of any age who want to constructively intervene in the process of techno-social transformation. Isn't that fantastic? And it sounds an all, a little bit like the national curriculum, actually. The, 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 the important statement sounds a bit like that. And he goes on to say, it's a book for anybody who's interested in technology. Um, and and, and he's, he's imagining a future in which objects, and it's a future that's not far away, he reckons, in which objects have the following features. They know who they are. That's RFID, radio frequency identification. Everything knows what it is because everything has a unique RFID. And Walmart, for example, are now insisting their suppliers put an RFID device on everything they sell. I'm going to talk about every razor blade. And it's not like a barcode where all razor, codes, all razor blades have the same barcode. This is a unique identifier on every single razor blade. And these, th- these things are, are, are kind of um, cent or tenth of a cent price now, RFID tags, so you can afford to do that. So everything knows where it, what it is. Everything knows where it is, GPS. So you lose your keys or your left sock, you can Google it. Because it knows what it is and it knows where it is. Yeah? He also talks about things being created, existing in their essence as data, which is occasionally made, appears as an object, and then when the object's finished with, it's fed back into the stream of material. He's very interested in green issues, recycling. Yeah? So the idea that the reality of an object is its data, it might appear as a sort of object, a, a, a bit like... Um, a bit like photons that occasionally apparently appear out of the ether through quantum mechanics, same kind of idea. You know, the object appears, and then when you finish with it, you just feed it back into, into the stream material. And he calls these things spines. And again, you know, this is a science fiction writer who's written a book, he's made, he makes up words, that's what writers do. You try Googling the word spine. It, it's one of those memes that has really taken a huge community... Um, well, I was going to say by the balls, but I've said it now, by the balls. It's, it's really a very, very big idea out on the web, and people are developing this idea of spines, and it's become a way of thinking about future objects that is actually now driving the way objects are driven, which is, I think, quite interesting. So, so this idea of spines, uh, these objects that exist in space and time, that's where the word came from. Now, in better control, we've got things like pickaxe, which I think Clive's talking about later. We've got things like the Lego Next Robots, um, I don't, has anybody come across Pico Cricket? Pico Cricket's really interesting. That, that, that's a sort of diagram of it down in the corner there. Pico Cricket is a microprocessor embedded control device. But one of the things that's nice about it, a bit like the Lego, the new Lego stuff, is that all of the bits that you plug into it are all intelligent. So if you plug a light in, 
You can plug it into any way you like in this Pico Cricket, and it's a light. But then you, when you program it, you just say something like, set the light colour to blue, set the light colour to a different colour, and, 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 and it will just program, it'll just say code telling the light, go blue, go green, and the light will change colour. Dim a bit, it'll dim a bit. So the intelligence is built into the peripherals, which makes programming that easy. That's how kids program it. And this is aimed at eight-year-old plus children. And essentially that's C, but it's a structured form of C that gets you away from flowcharts. You talk to computer scientists, flowcharts, not good. Okay, but, but it's the paradigm we're used to working with in schools. This is flowchart-like, but it reveals the kind of underlying computer science programming structure for children. Let's say eight-year-olds are working with this writing essentially in C, control programs. Because, very easy to write because you've embedded the intelligence in the peripherals, or you've embedded some of the intelligence in the peripherals. Um, there's actually a version of this. If you've got the old Lego bricks, the RCX bricks, you can download a version of this programming language to program the Lego RCX bricks, if you're interested. If you, if you go to the Pico Cricket website, you can download it from there. They've also released a, the, the same idea as Star Logo, which is a free download if you're interested in teaching kids a logo. This is like logo for games programming, you know, 3D logo. You've got, you know, robots running across the plane, fighting each other, whatever you want to do in your, your game. Um, so that, that's a logo version um, that is programmed like this. And if you've heard of Scratch, anybody heard of Scratch, the programming language from MIT? Well, again, it uses the same programming idea. Um, and Scratch is, 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 again, a free download, and Scratch lets you build, I, I can best describe it as Flash-like um, things, you know, flash, you know, Flash films. But instead of using Flash, you use Scratch, and, and it's a very nice programming space. So, I, 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 I've got a, well, he's now seven, but he, he started doing this when he was six. Six-year-old playing with Pico Cricket, you know, you know, I'm fond of him, but he's not a genius. He's just an ordinary six-year-old, or he was just an ordinary six-year-old when he was six. And, and he, he, could, he could work with this, but they aim it at eight-year-olds. So we've got robotic programming coming right down. And there's a typical kind of thing that they suggest. Make your sculpture dance when you clap. This is what I mean about kind of bringing together art and design. When you get the Pico Cricket box, you get the Pico Cricket electronics, you get some bits of Lego, and then you get pipe cleaners and little eyeballs and all stuff like that as well, felt. So that it's encouraging children to, to not just look at kind of geeky robots, but to think more widely about what it is you can control and what you might want to do with it. And I just thought I'd mention this. Um, th th this is called the STM32 Circle. This is ST Microelectronics. Um, this is a little device with an ARM processor in, the same processor that's in your phone. Um, accelerometer, so it knows which way up it is. Um, USB communications, both to program it, but also so it can talk to other devices. Um, a, a, a nice graphics display, a little operating system that you can program. It's all open source. Again, if you search for STM32 Circle, you'll find it. That costs £25. That's quite cheap, isn't it? You know, this is a development tool, but I think there's a conversation to be had there with STM, with ARM, and I'm meeting some people from ARM in a couple of weeks to talk about this. To develop, I mean, I hope Clive isn't offended by me saying this, but if you look at PICS, which is the kind of the programming peak of what we do in schools, it's 19, what, 80s, 1990s technology. It's not 21st century technology. I think we need to be looking for what the next thing is that might follow on from what we currently do with pickaxe and, and so forth. And it's going to be something like that, I think, something with a very powerful processor and you can do really interesting things with so that you can program things to be spimes, to have RFID, to do GPS and so forth. Then there's low-cost 3D printing. 
We're all familiar with this. People seen this? This is the Fab at Home. This is an open source, build it yourself, 3D printer. You can buy all the bits for, well, certainly less than a thousand pounds. Um, we're working at the moment with Unimatic. This is American, but we're working with Unimatic. They're going to create a UK badge version. Well, UK version in that it will be in metric units, not imperial units. All the screws are imperial. It's a pain when you lose one, you have to go find imperial screws. I'm in the middle of building one at the moment. Um, <clears throat> and it'll have a CE badge and all the rest of it so that we can actually use it safe in schools. But, but for, you know, th- th- I think the bits are about five or six hundred pounds. You can imagine if you're doing an engineering course, getting the kids to build one of these, program it, and then use it for the rest of their course, can't you? Now, the interesting thing about this, Evan Malone, the PhD student who, who's designed this and put it on the web as an open source thing, his PhD project is to, is to create a device uh, that a robot will walk out of. So that's just a, an, an intermediate kind of step on the way to his PhD. This is at Cornell University. A robot will walk out of that, he reckons, in the next 18 months. Because you can 3D print with a vast range of materials, including conducting, non-conducting, and all the rest of it. I mean, people are 3D printing... Um, microelectronics these days. So 3D printing is getting very cheap and becoming something that might make a big difference to how we deal with robots. There's also homegrown. Have you come across RepRap? This is from Bath University. This is the, the, the self-replicating rapid prototyper. The idea of RepRap is, and this is an early version that you can see on the left there, is that it, apart from the, the electromechanical parts, it will be able to build all of the parts for itself. So once you've got one rep wrap, it's easy to make others. And the deal is, the, the kind of unspoken deal is, if you download the materials, for the, the, the designs for this from the, from the rep wrap website, is that you should make six for other people at their cost. Once you've built one yourself, he wants you to commit to making six more for other people. So the idea is there'll be this kind of exponential growth of rep wraps all over the place. Um, and and, and as, as, as they said, you know, it's all open source, because what's the point of creating a device that builds itself and then trying to copyright it and spending the rest of your life running around trying to tell people not to do with the machine what it was made to do in the first place. So it's all open source. Both of those devices, you can, you can go and have a look and download them. Not open source, but the desktop factory, this is from the States, and I'm waiting for a UK manufacturer to say they're selling it over here, $5,000. Halve it for the exchange rate at the moment, £2,500 for a 3D printer. Now that's well within the reach of schools, isn't it? It's a fairly small envelope. I think it's, it's called the, the desktop um, 125C or something in it because it's a 5 by 5 by 5 centimetre envelope. But you could build some interesting stuff in that, and for that price, you get some quite interesting things going. For example, printing bits that fit nicely with your LEGO Next robot to make it a different shape robot if LEGO would let us do it. And finally, this is finally, this is David Levy, a very respected, I have to emphasize this, a very respected academic in the States who's just written this book. Um, and it's a serious academic work. What is the evolution of human-robot relationships? Um, he, 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 if you go searching for David Levy in that title, you'll find quite a lot of interviews with him because this is the kind of book the press likes to interview authors about. And... Um, he says his wife wasn't all that happy about the book, but hey, it's published. Um, so, you know, what is the future of robots is the question, and, and how are we going to get in the curriculum? I think that's what David and I have been trying to ask at the start of this conference. How are we doing for time, actually? Fine, we've got five or six minutes for questions. Oh, and, and as I said, there's a lot of videos on my website of some of these robots. The website is 
www.steve.co.uk. Hi, uh, Andy Cooper, Nottingham Trent University. Thanks for the talk, um, and there are some fascinating bits there. I think one of the things that I'm grappling with with students that uh, I teach who will be going on to, to be teachers um, is just getting to grips with uh, a sort of robotics electronics curriculum, which is, is just overwhelmed, really, with technical knowledge and content, uh, which I think de- detracts from the sort of creative and, and decision-making that, you're, you, you, that you know, you've been referring to. And uh, I was particularly interested with this idea of the decisions, you know, whether you go too few or too many, and it is just striking that balance. But I think that's the big challenge for us at the moment. I'm, I'm particularly put off by, uh, you know, GCSE uh, curriculum uh, and the, the content of just that's, you know, goes back to electronics, back to the 60s sort of thing, that we're expected to teach uh, pupils. And I go in and see my teachers in schools expected to teach the theory of the 555 timer, and the kids don't understand it. You know, my students don't understand that stuff at that level. I, I'm sort of lucky if I can get students working out resistor for an LED, really. And, and, and there's a real dilemma there in, in terms of making it motivating and making it it's sort of challenging and, and bringing something worthwhile to the curriculum. And I think if we want to embrace all pupils, then, uh, you, you know, we've got to look at things a bit differently than we have done in the past. Yeah, I agree. I, I'll defer the question on curriculum exams to Brian because he's coming up to talk in a minute anyway and um, he's the definitive voice on curriculum, at least with AQA. Um, <clears throat> although we have been working on a new specification that I think is better in some of the terms that, that, that you're talking about. In, in terms, yeah, you, you need time. Um, one of my responses would be systems. You won't yeah. be surprised to hear me say that. Um, I, I think, and, and those of you who know me will, will, will know that I'm going to say this, but I, you've got to approach electronics from a systems point of view. So you start with, you know, the big chunks and the big ideas. That's why I like, for example, Pico Cricket. It hides the detail of the electronics for, for young children so, so that you can just tell a light to go red or to go blue and the same light changes colour. And you don't have to know about tricolour LEDs and all that hard stuff yet when you're eight. But you might want to know later if you've been hooked at that age. And that, that seems to be the way in. Systems approach... Where, where, where you're interested in the top-level details, the functional details, what it does, and when you're really hurt and you want to go further in it, then you need to go deeper and deeper. Um, so that's, that's from a pupil point of view, that seems to me the right approach. For, from a student training point of view, it's a big problem. I mean, we, we use um, the Subject Knowledge Booster course money from the TDA to run a 10-day electronics course with our students at the University of Manchester. Um, and one of the things I do at the end is, is give them two or three days to sort of fab lab. I say, okay, we've got all the kit. We've got electronics. We've got manufacturing kit. What are you going to design and make? And so I force them into doing that. And it's hard, but they do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be negative about no. it because I think one of the most fascinating things about robotics is that opportunity to integrate structures, materials, <laughs> mechanisms, electronics in, into a really motivating context. And um, yeah, I think that's the route we need to go down. And uh, uh, and particularly aspects of systems and some of the kits like Lego, like pick chip technology and so on, offer a lot of opportunities. Absolutely. And I think we need to sort of push that and sort of push out some of the, the more sort of content-laden theory, theoretical approaches yes. which, which don't help. Thanks. I'll, I'll leave Ashley to be in charge of time and tell me when to start, but are there any other questions? Time for one more question. Sorry. Hang on, you'll need a microphone, Jerry. 
Thanks. Just one thing that I sort of feel about the um, content of robotics is that a lot of um, students see all these sophisticated media-type robots and things like you put on your first slide, and that's what they want to make. Hmm. Okay, so one of the challenges is sort of making it interesting enough to, to make them want to do something much more fundamental, but at the same time give them some kind of aspirations to what... Uh, they, they might see and conceive as being the sort of thing that you, you do in robotics. So I think one of the things that turns kids off very quickly is if they, they've got this view of robotics and you're offering something that's nothing like it in, in, in their eyes. And I think that's a very fundamental key thing for the delivery of it coming through the new curriculum is how you actually address that and get that off, off the ground. And I think that's something that, you know, it's got to be a debate over the next, you know, year or so when all this come, comes into place with teachers who've yeah, got I, to present this. I agree. I mean, we're not going to have key stage three kids making walking, talking robots, are we? It's, that's not going to, well, not from the ground up. Which is, which is why I haven't said I don't think, I think kits are a bad thing. I'm just saying we've got to ask a question about where you go from pre-built robots through kits to, to making your own stuff. I think there's a spectrum of things and we've got to think about how we engage with those. For example, you know, buying a pre-built robot that does really cool stuff and programming to do things might be an interesting way in to start before you go further. Or with Lego, you've got Lego that lets you very quickly assemble something that does something recognizably robotic if that's what you want to do. So that's probably undoubtedly the, the way to go. But I think if we're sort of trying to, to change the, the, the curriculum in a fundamental way, as this obviously is, that you've got to actually look at it from the student's point, point of view. And I think that very strong point out of what you said about the student voice, you know, that that is important to take into account. Otherwise, they will not go with you and you'll be back to battering head to head against no. a, a brick wall <clears throat> again. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's... The issue is progression, isn't it? And starting with kids doing Pico cricket when they're seven and eight years old. Yeah. And this idea of these, this, these CPD sessions where people can spend two whole days kicking something around and making it good. If you've got primary teachers working with secondary teachers during those two days, you could actually explore the progression and the sorts of things that might actually happen as, as you as a teacher expect to happen as children get older. So you could kind of look at this notion of of, okay, we all want to make the walking, talking, all singing, all dancing robot when we're 12, and you can't do that. But what does it look like as kids get better at robotics? And there's going to be a bit of time where some kids at Key Stage 3 will be a bit unhappy because we haven't got that model right. But I think we've got to spend some serious time getting that model of what it means to get better at robotics from Key Stage 1 through to Key Stage 4 work through. And it doesn't involve understanding the 555 timer. I have to say that. There is a kind of... Um the Design Technology Association are developing a kind of curriculum framework for electronics and for CAD. David and I are working with, with Brian and others on the, the electronics version of that. <coughs> excuse, excuse me, on the electronics version of that, and I think there's scope for us to build that into that framework, David. Okay. Thank you very much for those... Uh valuable contribution to kick us off today and there'll probably be opportunities for further discussion and questions later and we're going to have to be a little bit flexible on the program. There's several speakers not showing up yet. <laughs> They're um, um, having a slight 
deviation from the program right now. Um, the, the version you had was printed middle of last week, and uh, Clive Seeger and Brian Williams have uh, agreed to swap places now. So I think we're, um, Brian Williams um, is, is up next. Brian's uh, chief examiner in uh, systems and control for AQA. And he's going to be talking about robotics and the AQA, and he will be followed by Clive Seeger on opportunities for robotics and the new diplomas. Thank you. And in, in that uh, well-known tradition of trying to get things in the right, in the right place, I'm uh, actually the chair of examiners for design and technology and engineering. I'm not a chief examiner at all. It's somebody else's, uh, it's somebody else's job, I'm glad to say. Um, I just need to find my presentation on here. Actually, it'd be quite... Useful. Okay. <laughs> Got somebody else's. Just talk about yourself for a few moments whilst. Yeah. That one? Williams, perhaps? Okay. That's the one. Thank you very much. Slight change again, because obviously we are going to change things. It's a world, it's a world of change, isn't it? Um, which I've changed the title slightly. I think the original one I had was something like uh, Robotics and AQA, and it seemed, seemed somewhat inappropriate. Um, basically, I'm going to talk about the world of qualifications and, uh, and robotics um, and, the two, to, and how the two fit together, as, as far as is humanly possible. Um, it's, a big cha- it's a time of, of great change in, in qualifications, as I'm sure everybody in this room is, is very well aware. Um, we have uh, the current set of qualifications pretty much coming to the end of their, of their useful life. Uh, GCSE, as Andy's already commented, is, is now getting somewhat, somewhat long in the tooth. Uh, there are new specifications coming out for, uh, for first uh, entry in 2011. That's first, uh, first examination in 2011. And uh, you'll all be aware of the diploma. I'm going to talk about the diploma at some length in, in this 20-minute slot. I'll, uh, I'll not bore you for too long, hopefully. Okay, so who we are? Who are we? Um, AQA and City and Guilds. Well, AQA, um, I hope most people know, it's the largest of the three unitary awarding bodies for GCSE, along with Edexcel and OCR. And uh, to be honest, there's nothing that we do uh, that they don't do in the way of qualifications at GCSE, except we, we just happen to have the largest share of the market. Um, we also, of course, uh, are a awarding body for GCE um, for, for A-level. And A-level is just going into its new structure, moving away from a six-unit structure into a four-unit structure. So those people who teach it will know about it, but in the area of systems control, it's such a small number of people that I'm not actually going to spend any time today discussing it. I think there are, there are only a few hundred candidates nationally. City and Guilds, um, you're probably well aware, is the largest provider of vocational qualifications in the country and, and internationally. It, it has uh, branches in all sorts of parts of the world. And together, um, we, we are offering the, the new vocational diplomas. Sorry, they're not vocational. Wash my mouth out. Sorry, the new not vocational diplomas. The new whatever kind of diplomas they are this week. The 14 to 19 diplomas. Uh, most of the work conventionally being done in schools in this area in robotics tends to go into GCSE systems and control technology. I'll be talking about that. Um, we get some work because it is a smaller qualification and got the same number of candidates, so obviously we do see some work in the GCSE double award. Um, we are expecting to see, but nobody can say yet, some work to be carried out in the 14 to 19 diplomas, 
at all three levels. And they, they masquerade under two titles these days. We've talked about them as being foundation, higher and advanced, or if you're into old money, levels one, two and three. It, uh, it all depends just when you picked up on the, on the literature what you call them. But currently, QCA speak is foundation, higher and advanced. As part of the diploma, there is a thing which is called the extended project at level three, advanced, and also it's called the project, where it has less hours, therefore it's not an extended project, at level one and two. And earlier speakers have talked about student voice, and one of the things that makes the, uh, the diploma very different is that it's a, it's a mandatory part of the qualification. Every student undertakes this independent project, which is very different from the kind of project which we're used to in, in traditional coursework. I'll come back to that. I've already spoken about, uh, about the A-level and said basically uh, it's, it's very small. But obviously you could, have a, uh, you could have a candidate who wanted to work in the area of robotics because it's about electromechanical systems, effectively. So, looking at GCSE design and technology, um, this is the current situation. It will change when new specifications are released um, in September, but as the ink is not yet dry on the paper... Uh, I can't talk about those in any real detail other than to talk about the, the generalities of them. But currently, um, we've got 40% on written paper, 60% on, on the coursework, which is driven in all sorts of ways by different centres. Um, but the coursework is, although it's 30% design and 66% making, I've got rid of 1% somewhere in all of that, um, it's a free content component, which means that the candidate should be able to integrate different things together and come up with their own solution. What we tend to see, to be brutally frank, is we do see an awful lot of repetitive work, that we see an awful lot of work which is produced to a formula using preset kind of ways of, of dealing with problems. And I can see Jerry nodding his head because we've had that, we've had that conversation on previous occasions. Um, and Jerry does work for, for OCR and I think it's pretty much the same view that they see as well. Um, going back to the mandatory requirements of this particular specification, electronics is the core and therefore every student has to do electronics and then they can specialise in either mechanical or, or pneumatics. And we see very little pneumatics and we see predominantly mechanical. The work has to be completed in 40 hours. That's a nominal 40 hours. It's not a, a closely regulated 40 hours. Um, and robotics can provide a focus for coursework. And it, in my usual not-quite-ready way of doing things, I have brought a picture. Um, I can show you. It's actually one of Clive's who recognised the pickaxe on it, um, of, a, of a piece of work which we were touting around a couple of years ago as part of the standardising. This, this is a grade A piece of work as far as we were concerned at GCSE. And this is part of the problem, in that that, that meets all the criteria for a grade A. Uh, those people who are really into electronics and, and robotics would say, well, it's not terribly demanding. But there's a limit to what you can expect a 15-year-old to achieve in 40 hours. And there is another problem, and one which I think um, David has already alluded to, is that there is also there is a lack of, of teachers with the, with the, r the correct kind of technical expertise to be able to support their their students when they want to undertake that kind of challenging independent work, which is why we see a lot of formula teaching going on. So there's a, there's a huge CPD issue out there. And one of the things that struck me as I came into this room, and I don't want to be rude, but a lot of you do look very alike. Um, and 
it's a bit like when I go to one of our examiner's meetings and, and they, a lot of those look alike. There are a lot of 45-year-old plus... Sorry, Rob, sorry, Rob, Rob, Rob which is getting very upset at being grouped with all these other people. Um, but there are a lot of us who look alike. We've reached a certain time in our lives and tend to be white and male. And I think this is seen almost exclusively as being a white male getting on a bit kind of club, uh, unless, of course, you are a young nerd or whatever. But these are not things that actually attract people into this sphere. And therefore, I think, in a way, we have to look at ourselves and the way that we, we mark it and the demands that we make when we start to write things like curriculum and when we start to write examination syllabuses or specifications, as they're more correctly called by QCA these days. But there are issues. And to, to pick up on an earlier point, because I will ramble, because that's what I do. I do, I do really well ramble. Um, the, the, the five, five, five timer. Yes, we'd all, we'd all very, very happily, you know, consign it to a bin somewhere. And yet it's there by popular demand. And that popular demand is actually schools. Schools who tell us we can't afford picks, they're a pound. We can afford five, five, fives, they're 17 pence. We know how to make the, the, the 555 work. We can't, we haven't got computers. We haven't got all that sort of stuff. And we are driven, we're driven by our regulator who says quite clearly and with, with, with a lack of ambiguity, which is quite rare on their part, you cannot make resource requirements in specification. You can't demand schools have, which is why you will see things like have knowledge of CAD-CAM rather than you will use CAD-CAM. So it's going to stay there. Those kind of, that kind of technology is still going to be around for, for a length of time. It's not going to disappear as, as far as we're concerned because probably like the Roman army, you have to move at the, uh, the, uh, the pace of the slowest uh, soldier. We have to accommodate all of the schools. We can't penalise the candidates in a school because their school doesn't necessarily have the latest piece of technology. So, coming back to, back to the, the things that we offer at the moment. The double award engineering, which I've got a, a copy of. The thing you've got to bear in mind about all these specifications is they form boundaries. They, they form the basis of a contract between an awarding body and, and a school. And therefore, what we say in there is what we do, and it's where we expect them to, to come to us. There are three equally weighted units in this particular thing. There's a designing unit, there's a, uh, a making unit, which is called engineer products, and then there's the one which is probably of most relevance to us here, which is the application of technology. Currently, uh, all, three, all three awarding bodies work to exactly the same specification. There's interpretation differences, but the first two are done through coursework and the last one is done through, through an examination. That would change when we move into the new specifications criteria does allow a little bit more flexibility. Application technology has basically been ignored by a lot of centres because it is the bit that they've got least control over. It's externally assessed and therefore it's always left to the last minute. People are very, very keen to get their 66% of, uh, of coursework completed and hoping that the kids can get their grade C. We all understand that schools are driven by the need for as many children as possible to get grade Cs. But there's Absolutely no reason why robotics couldn't be included across all three of those units. And there's opportunities, certainly, as we move into new specification. We don't see a lot of robotics in, in that particular qualification. Um, in fact, we don't see many of the more academically able children taking that qualification. It seems to have, have, have got its own niche uh, of being put there as a, 
as a, a qualification for children who do not seem to succeed and yet to be doing a qualification engineering if you're if you're having trouble with basic maths seems uh, somewhat uh, somewhat strange okay so let's move into the diploma existing qualifications are not meeting the bill qca tell us that very very clearly and therefore the, the, we've we've moved into the to the new era of the 14 to 19 diploma uh, where, where the content has been specified by employers through sector skills councils and the awarding bodies have been given the job of making sure the qualification is deliverable. The background is very straightforward and it comes straight out of the Leach report. Only 75% in the UK, of, of children in the UK stay on any kind of education or training. Most of our competitors average at least 90. It says nearly 90 here, but it's at least 90%. Nearly half of all people fail to get five good GCSEs, grade A star to C. That's based on the old, of course, the old O-level standard. Um, and it's on the assumption that, you know, something like about 53, 55% of children get those grades. Therefore, half don't. And there's a, a major complaint from employers that an awful lot of people who are leaving education don't have the skills they actually need to be useful when they go into the workplace that their basic mathematical communication and personal skills, etc., are very poor, and pro things like problem solving. To resolve all of that, the diplomas have been developed, and they need a currency in order to make them acceptable, particularly into schools where you know, a lot of people so in senior management positions are looking at them with a fairly jaundiced eye and saying, well, what's in it for us, and why would we go to a new qualification where we're not sure what the success rate would be, and so on. QCA have come up along with, um, with the universities uh, to an equivalency. So it's very large. Uh, level 1 foundation, 5 GCSEs, 7 GCSEs at higher, and 3.5 A-levels at level 3, um, advanced. Of course, recently, um, Ed Balls has announced the extended diplomas, which actually adds on to a, another A-level equivalent, onto the 3.5. In addition, every, every candidate who's going to take the diploma has also got to pass functional skills in English, maths and ICT. And they've also got to accumulate a kind of um, log of the personal learning and thinking skills which will include things like uh, team working which, was, which is all, again has already been talked about. <laughs> Okay, so we've talked about the levels and the universe, and it's meant to be university entrance. Now, I've got to be careful here. For some children, it will be a way into university. For some children, it will be a way into an apprenticeship. For some children, it will be a way into work. It very much depends what that child needs. But the, but the whole idea of the qualification is it will allow them to pick up and, and go in, in whatever direction, but to be well prepared. Currently, they're not. Components are principal learning. That's the subject specific. So in the case of the engineering diploma, that's engineering. In the case of manufacturing and product design, self-evident, isn't it? Uh, it's applied sector related, so it comes back to engineering. That determines the, the title and the learning that goes on is applied. So there's no theoretical learning. It's, it's to be in, in the context of what, it is, what you're about. Uh, generic learning, functional skills, personal learning, thinking skills, the project, experiential learning cycle, is about learn how to do it and then apply it by doing it again, not just do it 
remember it, walk into the examination room, put it down on the paper, walk out and forget it for the rest of your life. And it's about 10 days of work experience, which I ideally will be, will be related to the area that is under, under consideration. That's difficult. If you're doing creative and media, you can't always get 10 days in a theatre. If you're doing engineering, you can't always get 10 days in an engineering workplace. But that's, that's, that's the aspiration. In addition, there's an opportunity for additional specialist learning. These will be optional units. Some of them don't exist yet. There's a long, long list. Um, there's, a, there's an opportunity to specialise. Uh, and you can use complementary qualifications. For instance, you could do a modern foreign language, or it could be an engineering, an additional engineering qualification, something specific like welding, or maybe even something to do with robotics. Who knows? Personal learning thinking skills are about team working. They're about making people independent inquirers. They're about being self-managers and reflective learners, the participators, and creative thinkers. And if we can get people to do all of those things, we will have done a very good job indeed. Um, and higher education is looking forward to meet, meeting these people in the future because they say they've got skills that uh, currently they don't see. Principal learning and engineering. Uh, four themes at the advanced, only three themes everywhere else. The engineered world is an introduction, it's a single unit, and then engi discovering engineering technology contains lots and lots and lots of content. We've already spoken about there is lots of content. You actually see a diploma list. Uh, and engineering the future is about innovation. And hopefully the innovation bit will, will draw together all those different strands. Okay. And then we've, at, at level, level three, we've got analytical methods, which is science and maths. So the delivery model for a diploma. We get the themes, we apply the context, and then we've got project-based learning, investigating, planning, production and evaluation. Very active, it's meant to be very active learning. If we look at a, at a particular level, obviously engineering design offers opportunities to work in robotics, but so does everything else that's in red effectively. Engineering applications, engineering solutions, constructing electronic and electrical systems, all of these things you could all do in a robotics content. There's no reason why you couldn't deliver a huge amount of the diploma through through robotics. The uh, the, the project. And this is again. Well, this is a, a new development. Uh, first trial two years ago at Farnborough Sixth Form College for very academic sixth formers, where basically they did extended writing. But there are there are opportunities for doing other things and, and making an artifact or building a system would be one of those things. But it's a, an individual project which is negotiated between the learner and the supervisor. That supervisor does not need to be a member of staff of an educational establishment. It could be an employer. And it's a managed project where 60% of the, of, the, of the credit is actually for managing the project, not for what you make, which makes it very different to the traditional kind of project that we deal with at the moment. Clearly, you do still need teaching and supervision, and then we've got an advert for where you go to pick up more information. So the, the, the criteria are you get 20% for managing, you get 20% for using resources, 40% for developing and realising, and 20% for reviewing, evaluating how effective you were. The idea is to bridge that gap between the, the sort of spoon-fed approach that a lot of secondary schools are, are, are adopting in order to get kids through examinations 
and what higher education employers are asking for in, in terms of people who are self-reliant, self-motivating, self-starters, who can actually achieve things, because the two systems don't work together. Lots of choices for the individual to make, and clearly we would be looking for the artefact or the model or the construction. Uh, I don't think we need to worry about too much about that. Functional skills will be developed. Uh, functional skills at level three, of course, are, and you have to be functional skills at level two at the moment, so we'll move through that. Where are we going to go next? New GCSE 2009. Uh, some changes. Design and technology is going to change. Um, some people might say about time. A fully modelled solution will now be allowed, it's certainly in systems and control, but obviously in other specifications as well. It's part of the new, part of the new uh, QCA criteria, which means that if somebody did want to work, say, in a, in a modelled system such as the, the Lego that's been talked about today, they could do. So one of the problems has been, one of the things that's been holding people back in terms of complexity of solution and complexity of thinking skills has been the fact that, that up till now, 60% of, or 66% of their effort had to go into making. We're going to look at different ways of transferring credit across from making into designing so that where somebody is, is doing a lot of programming or, or sort of more intellectually kind of demanding activities, they get due credit. Uh, we've got a similar kind of problem, obviously, with the whole CAD CAM and the sort of the rapid prototyping thing as well, where you spend a lot of time on the first on the sort of frontline development work, but the actual making takes no time at all. And currently there's, there's a mismatch there. There will be new qualifications for additional and specialist learning for, for diplomas. There's no reason why robotics and automation wouldn't form one of those new qualifications. So you've got a, a standalone qualification for learners to use. But it doesn't exist at the moment. And then we've got a manufacturing and product design uh, qualification coming along uh, for the diploma for first start next year. Uh, it's currently going through development. And there is a, an advanced manufacturing automation unit at level three. And, you know, and if you think of robotics and automation as being fairly synonymous, there's opportunities there as well. Okay. I don't know how I'm going for time here. I think we talked a long time. Um, I'm open for questions at this stage or discussion. Definitely. Question on di diplomas. Um, when I first read about it, the idea, I believe, was that schools were going to deliver this in conjunction with colleges and schools were going to do one, two, and three. Can you talk about what the current thoughts are about whether schools are going to deliver all of this or whether colleges are going to do it, if it's going to be done in partnership? Or I think you, well, you actually just used the magic word. Uh, there's no, I don't think there is a single educational establishment in, in England because the diploma is only for England at the moment, such as the, the construction of the United Kingdom. Uh, where you can actually de de deliver all of, of the diploma in-house. They, they were never designed with that in mind. They were meant to be a partnership between further education, employers, work-based training providers and schools. So if a school says we are going to do all three levels of the diploma in-house, well, that actually isn't any different to what we're doing now, and that's not going to address the need, and it's not gonna, they're not going to be able to do it in the kind of way that's envisaged. So does that answer your question? No. No, right. <laughs> okay. Do you have a feel of what's going to happen practically? Yeah, um, I think 
from talking to a lot of consortia around the country, there's going to be a lot of kids moving around in minibuses. Um, somebody was saying the other day that to do, the, to do this thing properly, what you need to do is optimise your teaching group on, on how many you can fit in your minibus. That's, uh, that's, obviously, that's not quite how it's going to work, but there is, they've got to be opportunities for, for the learners to get out into the workplace. There's got to be extended periods in industry. They've got to make work, work-related visits, and likewise, industry's got to come in and work with, with those learners. In the case of something like engineering... Uh, schools and colleges will have to work together and that's a question of those schools and colleges auditing what they already do and what they're good at and making sure that that doesn't go away, that you don't want to lose that, but at the same time to, to draw on each other's strengths. So if you've got particular expertise of a teacher, and I can think you know, of, a, of a colleague who works in Coventry who's got particular expertise in electronics, uh, that local consortium has got to make sure that they use that teacher's expertise but it's a much wider group of children that are going to benefit from that expertise because they'll draw in you know, from, from across the whole city or half the city rather than just that, that small nucleus of children that he's worked with at the moment. Um, and likewise, you, know, you, you could have a very supportive employer who will make part of their facilities available um, so that you can actually do your project work in the workplace or very close to where the work you're undertaking is relating to. Individual projects at level three could well be uh, ones which actually somebody picks up when they do their work experience and the, their supervisor is, is somebody from the company and they develop that alongside using them as their mentor. There will be opportunities, I'm sure, for people perhaps who, who are currently undertaking apprenticeships to come in and mentor people, particularly learners at level one. You know, level one learners have got their own set of, of real problems which have been ignored, I think, up till now by, by this need for secondary schools to push everybody through this m magical grade C boundary. And, and those learners who are never going to make it for one reason or another, or certainly not at that stage in their lives, have been, to, to an extent, ignored. They can't, that can't happen in the diploma because the, the level one is now a distinctly identifiable unit which has, which has not got anything to do with, with the higher. And that's been done quite deliberately to make sure that those learners' needs are actually addressed directly. So it will affect changes. Okay, does that answer your question? More. We can talk about it afterwards. Uh, Stuart Dan, Create Products Limited. I would just like to ask about, uh, in, in schools in the past, trips have basically stopped in most schools because of risk assessment problems and things like that. Just there's too much effort involved and uh, the insurance, etc. This seems to challenge that in a big way. How The government's going to have to offer quite a lot to employers to overcome the insurance problem, etc. And I, I, it doesn't seem as if it's really been thought through. I, um, I, perhaps you can put me right on this, please. Well, I think, I think it has been thought through. Um, one, one, of the, one of the ways it's been thought through is that most, most consortia, and obviously consortia have got to go through Gateway, uh, are in partnership with, uh, with the local e EBP, yeah? their like, e Education Business Partnership, who are charged with exactly the job you talked about, actually making sure that there is access into industry for learners. And they will look at things like risk assessment and make sure all the insurance and all the necessary bits and pieces are dealt with. So that, that should not be a problem. Places and things as well. No, no, no. no. You couldn't. You couldn't possibly expect it, could you? I mean, it's not. It's not realistic to expect 
teachers to be taking time out of the classroom to go to visit you know, a large industrial plant to do something which the company does as a, as a matter of routine. Anyway, you show me a large company that doesn't have a health and safety policy or health and safety officers. But, you know, they have it. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's unfortunate, that I think, that what's happened is that a very few number of, ver- of isolated incidents, which have basically been to do with more sort of outward-bound kind of activities, have put a sort of clamp on, on people going out of school for perfectly legitimate purposes and perfectly safe. You know, you don't, you, people are going around. They're not the ones who have accidents in factories, are they? It's the people who work there who have accidents in factories. And it's usually because they become overconfident because they're there on a, on a daily basis. You know, people are being shepherded around in small groups, being kept within the yellow lines and with all the safety kit on are pretty safe. I'm a bit concerned that um, the arrangements are going to be a bit ad hoc. It's going to be a postcode lottery according to who in an area happens to be interested in electronics. As you say, you quote an example of some chap in Coventry who's very good at doing this. Um, but what if you're in an area where you haven't got anybody who's any good? Is the government going to put any money into training and incentivizing teachers to teach um, engineering, science and things on a national basis? Sounds I mean, like- to me, that's crucial. If that doesn't happen then it's just going to be uh, piecemeal, basically, with uh, a few people here and there doing great things and, uh, and whole deserts across the rest of the country where nobody, can, where nobody has the right qualifications. If I can put that into context, currently something like about 4,500 candidates do the GCSE in systems control. It's the smallest of all of the D&T specifications compared, say, with 50,000 that do resistant materials. Well, the, one of the major reasons for that is... The, the level of teacher confidence, preparedness. It might also be the way that we sell the, the subject itself, but, but whatever, whatever reason. And it's, it's, it's shrunk over the last few years, and it's, it's basically disappeared as, going back to where I started really earlier on, a lot of people have retired, people with the kind of expertise, the people who perhaps went through the forces, did, did uh, some kind of technical training as an apprentice, and then went into, teach, into teaching, and have stayed in teaching a while, and have de- developed over a period of time, those people are now leaving the profession. They're not being replaced in anything like the same quantity. So you're quite right. There is, there is a shortage of teachers of these specialised activities. And you know, David Barlett did talk about the, the, sort of the CPD, which is being planned for the future. But as far as I'm aware, there is no government policy to, to make sure that every possible need is, is addressed. There will be, obviously. That's one of the reasons why I think the consortia approach has probably got a strength because the area, the consortia area has to offer the diploma line and therefore geographically in a much wider area rather than, rather than being a school offering it, there's, there's more of a chance of a learner being able to pick up on what they need. Okay. Okay. Thank you.